Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia Baker-Whitelaw and here is my co-host, Morgan Davies. Hello. So this week we watched the 1986 drama Night Mother, based on the Pulitzer Prize winning play by Marcia Norman. Renowned character actors Sissy Spacek and Anne Bancroft star as a middle-aged woman and her mother who live together in a suburban house. One evening, Jessie, the daughter, calmly announces that she plans to kill herself, setting off a tense conversation between the two. I had never heard of this movie before this request, which is another Patreon request from a very kind of thoughtful listener, Jay. Um, We've been getting some just really interesting Patreon uh, subscriber requests over the past few months. Extremely varied. This movie, I think you can probably tell from the plot summary, I think it's safe to describe as a downer. (laughs) We're not going to mince words here. We would not want to mislead you into thinking this film is like a chirpy comedy. This is a serious character study play about someone who wishes to die. So I feel like that's a fairly clear warning. And uh, in terms of structure, it all takes place in one house and it is about two people having a conversation about suicide and their lives. Yes, if this is a subject uh, matter that is difficult for you, we would strongly caution you to not watch this movie and indeed not listen to this podcast because that's what we'll be talking about for the next, you know, 45 minutes or so. This is not like triggering material for me and I found this movie quite punishing to watch because it is literally just people talking about suicide for an hour and a half so yeah and i mean crucially it's not so it's not like really edgy at all it's a pg-13 movie there's nothing kind of explicit in it it's not like trying for shock factor but what it is is it's someone making like a debate style argument for why their life isn't worth living which if anything is worse (laughs) yes right yeah it's not like there's any gore of any kind which would have been less interesting i think and more banal. It is someone, as you say, who is very sort of calm and straightforward about her sort of philosophical reasons for doing this in a way that's a little bit opaque. So Sissy's basic plays the daughter, obviously. And there's a element to her performance that is a little bit unknowable, I think, which I couldn't quite decide whether it was a flaw of the movie or something that I found interesting about it. I think she's very good in the film, although there's she's a bit miscast in a way we'll discuss in a minute. But she talks about sort of reasons why she's unhappy and et cetera, et cetera. But there's not like a straightforward equation for why she is doing this, which is frustrating as a viewer, but also I think reflects some sort of truths about depression and mental health which is that it's not like people who do this or have really severe depression have a clear explanation right like it's we are fundamentally unknowable as people and depression is mysterious and so I think one of the interesting things about her performance is that she is a little bit just peculiar and not acting in a way that you would sort of stereotypically expect a really depressed person to act like she's very sort of together in a way yeah and non-histrionic. I was like, yes. I was thinking partly, I was like, yes, this is really interesting because it's, as you said, kind of a non-stereotypical image of a suicidally depressed person. And also kind of towards the end, I was like, oh, also it's kind of like when people get a second wind, like when when people have like decided they definitely do want to kill themselves, there's like an upswing in your mood because you're like, I've made the decision. This is so much better. And like people who have survived have said that was 
almost like euphoria and suddenly everything becomes a lot easier. And then afterwards you're like, oh fuck, that was a terrible idea. Yes. Yeah. So to give some background context, um, as you said at the top, this is based on a play. It's very obviously based on a play. It's all takes place in this house with these two characters. You see like a couple other family members through the window, but they're really not part of the drama at all. And it first was on Broadway in 1982 and won the Pulitzer the next year and then took a few more years to be adapted to the screen. The director, Tom Moore, who directed the Broadway show, also directed the film. And Marcia Norman, who was the playwright, did the adaptation herself for yeah. the three And they both have very long resumes. Like, Marcia Norman has written numerous plays and sort of adapted she's done kind of the book for various quite well-known Broadway musicals so like the Broadway musical The Secret Garden and The Colour Purple that sort of thing and both her and the director have worked in movies and TV as well although not in anything that you would maybe think of as like A-list but they both had really successful quite acclaimed careers. Yes this was her most successful play. Um, I had not heard of her and then yeah, also looked at her Wikipedia and was like, oh, she worked a lot. But this was the her big thing and is not... It has been revived. It was revived in 2004 on Broadway. But it's not a play that, like, everyone knows the name of, right? But, but it was a clearly a big phenomenon at the time. It was on Broadway for almost a year, which for a play about suicide is pretty impressive. Is wild and it also kind of makes me think the play is definitely better than the movie yeah i mean also i feel like kind of stylistically this felt slightly dated but um the movie is like good but it's not sell out broadway for a year good right i mean i don't know a great deal or much of anything about like the economics of broadway theater in the 1980s but certainly a play lasting on broadway for a year today would be an enormous success, especially a sort of small drama with subject matter like this. And it then had a national touring production, which similarly, like, wow. Um, and then obviously was adapted into a movie uh, with big movie stars. The original production starred a theater actor named Anne Petoniak as the mother character played by Anne Bancroft in this film, and Kathy Bates as the Sissy Spacek character. And this was before she was a huge deal. She made a couple of movies. I'm looking at her her filmography, but only a couple. And um, I read the New York Times review by Frank Rich of the play and he praises both of the actors but is in a way that's sort of just like the actor's very good and not like Kathy Bates you know big star in in this play and um that review was really interesting to me because it gave me some context for the film that I didn't quite have watching it and I'll read one excerpt from it we'll obviously link to this in the show notes um, he writes, Night Mother is not a message play about the choice to commit suicide. It's about contemporary life and what gives it or fails to give it value. We first get a sense of the Cates's existence before Night Mother begins. Heidi Landsman's disturbing set in view as we enter the theater is an all-American living room and kitchen right out of a television sitcom. 
Homey, appointed with the right appliances, conventionally tasteful. But when James F. Ingalls' cruelly bright lighting comes up, we see the house is colorless and dead, a pair of antiseptic model rooms framed like a department store window. And his argument is basically that, like, this sort of consumerist 80s attitude is being criticized and skewered in this play. And I did not get that sense strongly from the film. No, it was more kind of about just like mundane drudgery. And it could really be kind of any time in the 20th century. Like the first section of the film, which is quite slow to start in a traditional way, is just Sissy Spacek, the younger character, just walking around the house doing chores. And you get like a really good idea of her character and what her life is like, because she's this quite frumpy middle-aged woman who is just doing all these chores and kind of taking things off on a list. But also it's quite ominous because obviously you know what the film is about. And the stuff she's doing is sort of like, you know, preparations. So like she's putting all of her clothes in bags to take to Goodwill. She's winding all the clocks in her house. She's doing all the laundry. And like the whole, all the way through the evening while they're having this long conversation, she is preparing the house and her mother for her to be gone as if she was going on a long trip or she was terminally ill but it's obviously something very different yeah and I think one of the things the film illustrates well and that SpaceX does really well is all of that kind of mundane business of like physically doing things yeah she's really good at performing tasks in a way that seems like she's actually doing them as opposed to some actors where you can tell. It's like, you're too rich to be doing laundry. (laughs) (laughs) Or even not that, but like, it just doesn't, it's just too effortful. Like, like there's something that's, it, it feels sort of wrong, or it's just the direction doesn't quite capture it. I think the direction of this movie, which was criticized in some of the reviews, is a little too busy. Moore, I think, was primarily a theater director before this, and there's a lot of camera work happening all the time, which makes sense if you're adapting the play that you directed on stage into a film that you would feel like you had to do stuff with the camera. Yeah. I mean, it's difficult when it's this kind of play that's like very, I mean, it's very stagey. It's a two-hander. It's in one location. And I did feel like Anne Bancroft did have quite a stagey performance in this. She gets better as the movie goes along, I felt. But where the sort of camera movements were working in a positive way, I felt was all of the stuff that SpaceX was doing that was just kind of busy work, but it's not busy work. It's, you know, preparing stuff. And you get a sense of what her life is like, which is just keeping up the house and doing stuff for her mother, who isn't like a totally helpless woman or a complete nightmare, but is sort of just irritating. And you understand that if you're a grown woman, this woman is not the person you want to be spending all your time with. And this basic character has epilepsy as well, which I can't remember if you said that at the top, but she can't really have a job because she's constantly at risk of having a seizure. And, you know, she's divorced and etc, etc. And so there are these various reasons why she's even more trapped in this house than just the fact that she lives with her mother as an adult woman. So the combination of those external factors and the general sense of like, as a woman, you have to do all of these housework things 
is conveyed, I think, very well through SpaceX's performance and the direction. Yeah. I was also like, what a better time to be watching a film about being trapped indoors doing housework than now. (laughs) (laughs) Watching it, I was just like, oh, God. (laughs) But the sort of bigger context that Frank Rich is getting at in this review of the play in the New York Times, I was thinking about this in terms of adapting plays to the screen. There was a recent episode of the podcast This Had Oscar Buzz, which I've mentioned a couple times on here, which I love, about the film Proof, which is an adaptation of another Pulitzer-winning play starring Gwyneth Paltrow. And I loved that movie at the time, mysteriously, because I was 15 years old, and I don't know why I was so into this movie. But I obviously didn't see it in the theater because I was too young. But one of the hosts of that podcast, Chris File, was talking about the experience of seeing the play on Broadway. And he said that a lot of what was going on in that play, which was first staged on Broadway in like 2003 or so, was sort of not an allegory exactly, but kind of for the Iraq war. So the setup of that play is that Gwyneth Paltrow is this sort of troubled genius mathematician. Her father was a troubled genius mathematician and he's died. And there's this proof in the house that gets found and everyone thinks her father wrote it. And she's like, no, no, I wrote it. And the whole play is everyone talking about finding proof and like, et cetera, et cetera. And that he was describing sitting in the theater and you could feel everyone kind of being like, because what was going on in the culture at the time was like the anxiety around like proof of weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. And they were also talking about August Osage County and the depoliticization of that film adaptation. I haven't seen either the play or the film, so I can't comment on that. But I think there often is this sort of like, when plays are coming out or being staged, there is so much specific cultural context that is even sort of below the text and in the staging, right, that you're not seeing in a film adaptation. And in this two, like Ordinary People came out in 1980. And that movie was a huge phenomenon because it talked about teen suicide. And I think that in this period, which I obviously didn't live through, there was just this sense of this being like a hot button issue. And now watching it decades later, it doesn't have the same potency, you know? And I think it's just kind of a problem with adapting these things is that they're so of the moment and sometimes plays obviously just last forever and it's fine, but sometimes they don't. I mean, there's some plays that like the tension arises a lot from the live audience, which may be kind of somewhat of the case here. But yeah, like another thing to do with the casting that I think you were kind of moving into there to do with this review is the fact that City SpaceX is like so different from the women who've played this character on stage. So Obviously, she's meant to be, you know, she's a frumpy, divorced woman in kind of early middle age who has a kind of teenage son who doesn't appear in the story, but they're kind of talking about him. He's meant to be, you know, he's in trouble with the law. He's a rebel. And um, they have like an estranged relationship. And she's also estranged from her ex-husband. But in the theatre play, she's meant to be kind of unattractive and she's meant to be quite overweight. And in this, you have Sissy Spacek, who obviously you know, they've kind of put her in a frumpy outfit and they've given her kind of graying hair. 
but she's still a very con- conventionally attractive woman. And Sissy Spacek is also a very charismatic performer. And it really changes the dynamic of the story. And she is definitely amazing in this, but it like kind of automatically alters the framework they're like telling this in. I mean, something I was saying to Morgan before we started recording is I think it's pretty likely that this film could only get funded if they had Sissy Spacek in the lead role. I mean, this is the kind of role that she really likes as an actress. Like she's had a very varied career, but she takes, you know, a lot of troubled women roles and like serious dramas. And I think she's also done kind of several theatrical adaptations but with this kind of adaptation, it's not exactly going to be a hot sell, even if it is from a really successful Broadway musical. And they were like, probably we will fund this at the studio if you can get someone who is a big name to put on the poster. Yeah, so there's a review in the Washington Post that was, I would say, mixed, that was interesting, that we'll link to, uh, by a critic called Paul Atanasio. And he says about SpaceX specifically... It's an odd casting choice. She may not be wearing makeup, but she's still a movie star, which keeps you at arm's length from Jesse's despair. And Spacek can't avoid her own warmth and naturalness, exactly those qualities that have made her a movie star. She makes suicide seem life-embracing. And I thought that last sentence specifically, she makes suicide seem life-embracing, was so insightful about the sort of problems with the film that I had even though I thought it was interesting and in some ways well done. And I thought SpaceX was good. Like, I thought she was the best thing about it. I found her quite entrancing. And some of the things he's saying about being at arm's length of her, like where I said at the top about that being sort of a problem as well as a virtue, I still think is the case. Because in a way, the fact that she's a little bit of a mystery, I think is almost the point because you can't really know why someone is doing this. But I thought it was interesting to read after the fact that Kathy Bates had played the role initially, and you're supposed to see this as someone who is more visibly ill and not doing well. Not that being overweight means you're ill, of course, but like, since he's basic in this movie is so beautiful and clearly fit in the way that she's moving around like part of what we were talking about about her doing all the stuff around the house like part of what's entrancing about watching her is that she does everything so efficiently and that's part of the sort of strangeness of the whole situation is that she is so compelling to watch because she has this energy to her which you can sort of explain away as the sort of like last gasp of energy but like she does kill herself at the end of this play slash film and her mother has tried like every thing that she can think of to stop her, which is not to say that she's handled the situation well, although you sympathize with the mother, certainly like she clearly is not equipped to deal with this situation because who, who is, um, but she argues with her. She yells at her. She pleads with her. She tries to bargain, you know, and it still winds up with this woman killing herself. And obviously at a certain point, like, you can't stop people from doing what they are going to do. Like, it's not her mom's fault that she can't stop her daughter from killing herself. But there is a degree to which the movie feels like it's kind of valorizing this decision. And I think, I don't really think that's what the movie's trying to do exactly. I think it's more just that SpaceX is so entrancing to watch 
that that's what you wind up feeling, which feels kind of irresponsible to me. I feel like it probably works better on stage, though I haven't seen it, obviously, so I can't be sure. Yeah, that, that quote you read out earlier about the stage play kind of talking about how it might have more consumerist el- consumerist elements is a bit surprising to me having watched the film because to me it felt more just about kind of the fact that this woman kind of lived to the age of like 40 and her entire life has been domestic and it's kind of about how, you know, all that she does is basically act as like a servant for her mother and because she has epilepsy she's not been able to have a job or a career and she spent all this time raising this kid who she's now estranged from and it felt like someone who's very thoughtful who's been kind of trapped in this sort of classic women's work situation but the film doesn't really feel like it's putting forward any explicit commentary about that but it does feel like she has a very different response to that than her mother who's just like this is a perfectly fine. Yes her mother doesn't understand her at all and Bancroft I don't think Bancroft is terrible. I mean, the thing that we were saying earlier about how her performance is quite broad, like I feel like that kind of works in the character's favour to a certain extent because her character is a lot more false and she's doing this thing like when when some people kind of come forward with a serious problem, sometimes the response to that can just be like cheeriness and trying to sort of fob it off or trying to solve it with like superficial solutions when it's a really deep problem that can't be solved by just being like, oh, let's go to the movies or something. Yes. So her her response to like her daughter felt extremely real to me. Yeah, I think the writing makes sense. I was sort of expecting at first, there's an Ingmar Bergman film from the 70s, I think, called Autumn Sonata, starring Liv Ullman and Ingrid Bergman. And Ingrid Bergman comes to visit her daughter, played by Liv Ullman, And her daughter is very anxious about her coming to visit. She's a bit frumpy. And you sense immediately that the mother is this very overbearing figure. And it's quite sort of pathologically like narcissistic personality disorder to the point where the mother late in the movie is like articulating her interior self in a way that's extremely like Freudian narcissist, but like no narcissist would ever actually say those things. It's kind of the problem with the movie, but all the mother daughter stuff is very good. And those two actresses are obviously amazing. And you get the sense of this like older mother and the sort of now middle-aged daughter who feels very overwhelmed by her mother's presence. And when this movie started, even just from like the poster I was like, well, that's clearly what this movie's going to be, right? Like, she's living with her mom, and the mom's played by Anne Bancroft, who's this, like, incredible force of an actress. And so there'll be something like that. And you get the sense that she, like, obviously she does not like living with her mother. But it's not really that dynamic, which was both frustrating to me, because it seemed like there was something a little bit missing but also interesting because it's not blaming her mother, even though she it doesn't seem like a great mom. She kind of is just ill-equipped to deal with this situation, right? And you feel increasingly for her as this goes along because her daughter has put her in this horrific situation. How are you supposed to deal with this? Like, you cannot. There's nothing you can do. And it felt to me like a really sort of cruel thing 
that the daughter has done this to her mother, which was interesting because I kind of was expecting just because of like films that I've seen for it to be a sort of opposite dynamic as opposed to if the daughter just leaves a note and does it, that's still obviously incredibly traumatic and horrible for her mother, but being like, I'm going to kill myself tonight and you have to talk to me about it for an hour and a half. It's like such a nightmare. Like, Oh my God. And you, and it's not a cry for help, right? Because she's not going to change her mind. She's just forcing her mother to like freak out for an hour and a half. And then she still kills herself. And it's just like, what, what? I mean, I wasn't enormously sympathetic towards the mother when I was watching it, but I think you're right that it's like, it's not so much that she is a particularly bad mother, but like their personalities and thought processes are so completely unaligned. There's just no crossover at all. And I find it interesting, like the the film really doesn't kind of push forward a diagnosis of any kind, which is generally a mistake, in my opinion, for any film or TV show to be like, here's what we think medically is going on with this person. I mean, obviously she's suicidal, but like, because it doesn't follow a really traditional story format, you've got this situation where instead of it being like, oh, here are like the expected beats that you should or can fail to follow when you're dealing with someone who has depression. It's more like the mother just can't comprehend like the idea of having dark thoughts or being dissatisfied with your life and doubly can't understand why Sissy SpaceX character can have been harboring these thoughts for kind of decades and it felt like kind of the opposite I was thinking of other films I've seen along these lines and this is not really the sort of movie I watch like I don't watch a great deal of like real life non-historical dramas and I definitely would not ordinarily be like time to sit down for a, for a thought-provoking movie about suicide um, but I did see a couple of years ago there was this movie called Beautiful Boy which starred Steve Carell and Timothy Chalamet which was kind of aimed to be an Oscar contender but it was one of those films that kind of fell slightly short of the the hurdle but that was based on a very successful autobiographical book, which is written by uh, a man whose son uh, basically sinks into just a cycle of addiction and going into addiction rehab facilities and falling off the wagon again. And it was this kind of tragic Timothy Chalamet movie. And that was much more along the lines of the formula I would have expected, where it's sort of like, almost educational and it's kind of there to be like here's an issue movie where we're going to inform you about what happens whereas maybe this felt like more of an issue movie in the 80s as in it's like finally a piece of mainstream art that's discussing the concept of suicide and why people might want to kill themselves but it's not being like here's a roadmap for what might happen to you and how to deal with that situation because it's like a really bizarre situation that would probably never happen to anyone right I mean, yeah, people don't do this. I kind—I mean, I wish I knew more about this sort of landscape in which this was coming out. Obviously, you know, we looked at some of the reviews, but I mentioned Ordinary People earlier, but which is a movie, I feel like I've seen clips of that, but I've never seen the whole thing. I really need to watch it. That was such a cultural phenomenon. And a large part of that was that it dealt with this sort of taboo subject. And that's teen suicide specifically, which is this sort of thing that people were, you know, freaked out about, right? And this is not that exactly, but it definitely feels to me like the fact that the characters themselves are talking frankly about this topic would have been novel at the time. And the fact that the mother doesn't react in the sort of quote-unquote right way 
was probably also quite novel. Because even though I don't think she's portrayed as like a horrible person at all, she definitely doesn't do what you're supposed to do. Like, she sort of deliberately antagonizes her daughter and says quite cruel things to her, clearly because she's terrified and freaking out. I mean, you understand, but I I have no idea what I would do in this situation, but I hope that I wouldn't be like screaming. But it seems like there probably was a transgressive element in the sense of like, it's not an educational film. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely subverting this type of story. Yes. And I think, and I still think it's like, pretty well written, but I do think that there's just been so much more since then. And not that this was like the first movie to talk about suicide or ordinary people, like all the Star is Born movies that predate this and in suicide as the recent one did as well. But it certainly was not a topic that was depicted a lot. And those movies, for instance, the Star is Born, various Star is Born iterations, all end in a sort of romantic or like symbolic fashion, right? Or like Harold and Maude, which is has suicide all over it, is also sort of romantic and symbolic. And this movie is not that. It's aggressively unromantic. Speaking of A Star is Born, I feel like perhaps this is just because like A Star is Born is so much bigger in America than it is here. I did not know what happened to A Star is Born when I went to see it. And I was like, what? <laughs> I remember, I remember this because I was shocked by this. I literally didn't know. All I knew was that it was like a rags to riches like story. (laughs) Yes. Well, those are, and again, like I'm haven't made like a study of this and obviously in, you know, novels and various things across time, this is something that gets discussed, but there is a sort of, I, I keep using the word romantic, but I'm thinking back to the sort of like romantic poet era way that this topic would have gotten depicted and I think that that's a lot of how this was conceived in a sort of abstract way before the sort of later 20th century in art or in public anyway because obviously it was seen as such a shameful thing and so you're not talking about it if someone in your family has killed themselves right and it is interesting to watch something from this time when it starts to become more of a a topic to be discussed And before the sort of language about mental health is more codified, right? Because part of the reason that Anne Bancroft's character doesn't know what to say in this movie, I think, is that, like, not that there's, like, a clear and straightforward solution to how to deal with this problem now, of course, but there's much more literature and, like, popular understanding of depression now than there was in 1983. And so it's all a bit fuzzier. And just from a historical perspective, I thought it was interesting to sort of see how the film is dealing with some stuff that hasn't changed at all because people are just people and that is what it is. And then other cultural things where like our understanding of this stuff has changed dramatically, even if you're not someone who is like deeply well-versed in, you know, psychology or whatever. Yeah. Um, Well, I think to wrap up, maybe we should talk about just stage to screen adaptations in in general and like which were some movies that we've liked that did a really good job of turning a play into a movie. Is this the first one we've done? I feel like we probably have done one, but sometimes there's some that are like stealth because mm-hmm. occasionally I will see a movie and then, you know, you'll see in the credits, it's like, oh, it's based on this play. And it's like, well, I've not seen, <laughs> I've not seen many plays, especially not American plays. 
Casablanca was a play. So oh, we yeah. have indeed. Yeah, if you've not listened that. to our Casablanca episode, it's one of our best. It's really good. We're very clever in it. Um, I think that <laughs> that one was like that was like heavily rewritten or something, right? Like that was one of these things where they just had like five screenwriters or something. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, one of the things that's interesting to think about in terms of the relationship between Broadway and Hollywood is, I this is certainly better than some I have seen some sort of transfers I've seen to the screen, but it still feels a bit awkward and it's clearly a play, right? Like it's two people in one location for an hour and a half, like duh. But in sort of classic Hollywood in the thirties, especially in the forties too, a huge amount of material that became films came from Broadway. Absolutely. Like, way more than now. But it was also, like, there was so, like, theatre was so much more, as in new theatre, was so much more, like, popular entertainment, which it isn't now, because you can, you know, watch Netflix. But, like, it wasn't just that there was, like, loads of cross-pollination in terms of, you know, adapting all these screwball comedies, where nowadays people don't as much go to the theatre for comedy unless it's a revival of something from the 40s. But there was also a huge cross-pollination of just, like, the writers, because when TV was kind of first kicking off in the mid-20th century, all of the people who'd been working as playwrights or failing to get work in New York, like, that was the point where, like, you know, theatre was slightly starting to tail off because the industry was shifting. So there were all these playwrights who started working on television, and, you know, they might or might not get successful plays, but they could always get work writing on, like, Gunsmoke or something. Yes, and so... a. ton of movies that you may have seen and liked from the you know that era a lot of them that you might not even think of had backgrounds in theater but as you mentioned a lot of the screwballs in particular were plays initially i mean the one that immediately came to mind for me was arsenic and old lace because like last week my friends and i did like a little zoom call performance of the script together (laughs) Which is a very dialogue-heavy, like, funny movie. And that's one that feels very... Feels more similar to the current ones in that it all takes place in that house. In a house in Brooklyn. Like, there are a couple scenes where he's Cary Grant is sort of outside the house, but yeah. it's totally in one location. And it's an amazing, amazing film. But it, you, if you think about it, you're like, oh yeah, clearly this is a play. Like, it's, it feels like a play. It's just that it's done really well. And, like, His Girl Friday has a few locations, but somehow it doesn't feel in the same way, like, contained. The one that I love that does feel like a play, but it's done in a really smart way, is um, Holiday, which was written by the same playwright who did The Philadelphia Story, which feels a little bit bigger, um, and also directed by the same director. And it basically all takes place in this one mansion, in Manhattan, but over the course of three days. And if you're watching it without that knowledge, I don't think it would occur to you. But if you do know, you're sort of like, oh, this is a three-act play. (laughs) And it takes place over three days, and they're in the same place the entire time. But those sets are so big and beautiful. And it's like Cary Grant and Catherine Hepburn. And so it doesn't matter. (laughs) Like, it's fine. But they just were really good at it. Like, the people back then, because they all shot on sets all the time anyway, so it's not a big stretch right and i feel like recently it's been very awkward to do this the one that i've seen recently that i think is very good but still has some of these sort of awkward issues of adaptation is um play rabbit hole which was adapted by 
John Cameron Mitchell from the play by David Lindsay Abair, which also won the Pulitzer Prize. Uh, and Nicole Kidman got an Oscar nomination for that. And it was sort of only talked about in terms of her performance. And she's really amazing in it. But he did a really good job with the whole thing, I think. But you'd still get the sense a bit of like, oh, he's put in a scene that takes place outside their home, even though this play clearly only takes place inside their home. But he had also had the experience of adapting Hedwig and the Angry Inch, which was his his own thing, into a film, which is a classic. Obviously, Hedwig and the Angry Inch is one of the finest, like in terms of, I mean, obviously it's adapted by the playwright, but also it's an interesting film like it's interesting in terms of filmmaking and casting and everything production design which kind of as we discussed in this like an awful lot of adaptations of stage plays are you know they're kind of hampered by the location like either it's like you're doing a film which has to be set in one place or you're really going out of your way to kind of create dynamic visuals around something which can just be a bunch of people sitting around and you know lots of stories can work that way I mean, I'd be interested to see the original stage version of The Lion in Winter, which I fucking love that movie. Um, it's it's quite a long film. It makes it a little hard for me to imagine what it'd be like to watch that, you know, as a Broadway play. But um, it's a kind of big historical drama about Henry II of England and his wife, Eleanor of Aquitaine, having a toxic marriage. And then their kids and various house guests and stuff. And the movie has got like Catherine Hepburn, Peter O'Toole, Anthony Hopkins, Timothy Dalton. It's got this big cast. Um, and they're kind of like running all over a castle and stuff. And I'm like, oh, okay, I guess it does technically take place in rooms, but like, I want to watch the version that has a castle. I have amazingly never seen that, despite loving Catherine Hepburn so much. Yeah, I know, I really need to. Um, I've seen mostly her her younger stuff. Someday, I, I mean, obvi- obviously you would love it. Like, <laughs> Yeah, the one other thing I would just say is with... Hedwig, which is an amazing film, and I have seen that on stage too, is that it's essentially a one-person show. And the film is therefore so different because it has to do something completely new. Right, because essentially it's Hedwig doing like an autobiographical monologue with songs and then you have the band as the backing. Like I've not seen seen it live, but the movie is like an actual movie with characters. Right. And so that's kind of the, in a way, an ideal situation if you have a genius doing it, because it allows for so much new stuff and experimentation. And I think both those, both forms of that are are so great. Yeah, this is just more hemmed in. I mean, musicals in general just translate better, because if you have a director who knows what they're doing, then screen still like works with them plays are can be really tough i think and this has some issues but i did find it really interesting um and i had never heard of it so thank you again to jay for having us watch it um the list of things that we have been made to watch (laughs) as a result of this has been incredible it's been so good (laughs) and with the list we have of things coming up includes again just surreal a surreal range of stuff. I like, mean, our next film is from the same general time period, but it could not be more different because we're doing The Towering yes. Inferno, which is a disaster movie and stars a cast of 12 million. So <laughs> nominated for the Academy Award for Best Picture, which is incredible. I mean, I'm excited because all I know about The Towering Inferno is that it involves some kind of towering inferno. Like, I could not guess what the plot of this film is. I assume 
an inferno. But the, the cast list, I'm just going to read a few names here because the cast list is long. And it's one yeah. of those cast lists where it's like, oh, okay, like every single person here is a name or has like a Wikipedia page. But the top kind of tier, Paul Newman, Steve McQueen, Faye Dunaway, Fred Astaire, Richard Chamberlain, many others. Also, O.J. Simpson. So this was from the period when people put O.J. Simpson in their movies. But yeah, fucking lot of people in this movie. And um, they're going to be embroiled in some kind of inferno. So I look forward to finding out about that. Also, on the note of adaptation, this <laughs> we, I have no idea what this means, and we will get into it next week, but this was adapted from a pair of novels written by not the same people. <laughs> the Tower by Richard Martin Stern and The Glass Inferno by Thomas N. Scorcia and Frank M. Robinson. Well, without looking any further into this research-wise, that, to me, strikes me as lawsuit territory. Yeah. This sounds like some people thought of a very basic idea that involved a towering inferno, and they were like, well, shit, this is pretty similar to the screenplay. And then they had to just give everyone a credit. So um, one loves a lawsuit, especially when it's like, you know, a big old blockbuster that cost millions of dollars. Oh, I can't wait. Also, all the actors were in a legal fight about who got to get top billing. So love it. Love it. <laughs> There's going to be a lot to discuss about this. It's going to be really good. Uh, yeah, between this film from this week, The Towering Inferno and Witness, we are just mid-20th century Hollywood film. I'm learning about what it was like to be in America. The culture of the American baby boomer. Specifically the culture of the white American baby boomer, I think. Uh, Yes. (laughs) Correct. So yeah, The Towering Inferno next week. Uh, Thanks one final time to Jay for having us watch this movie. If you would like us to watch a random film of your choice, That option is available to you on Patreon. Thanks to all of our Patreon subscribers. We appreciate you very much. That is at patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. Uh, Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find my work on The Daily Dot, where I am, as ever, reviewing various newly released TV shows and movies, etc. And you can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor. And I am on Twitter at mldavies. The podcast is on Twitter at overinvestedpod. Our Tumblr is overinvestedpodcast. And our website is overinvestedpodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.